Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 3. 2 Kings chapter 3. Second Kings chapter 3, last week we concluded with verse 20. As you're turning, I'll remind you, last week we read of a minstrel on whom God put his hand and into whom God put the words of a very short ballad that we read. And the words spoken by the minstrel told the kings of Israel and Judah and Edom to make a valley full of ditches and that he was going to fill, God was going to fill that valley, those ditches, but there would be no wind and no rain. And yet the valley would be filled with water an act of God's amazing grace to the thirsty and weary and mixed multitude. There were Israelites, there were Edomites in that group. And the minstrel concluded the saying by telling them God would deliver the Moabites into their hands just as easily as he filled the valley with water. One thing is just as easy as the other. And following the morning offering, God filled the valley with water. And the men and the beasts drank of that water. And now we look at verse 21, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 21. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings were come up to fight against them... They gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. Now the word upward at the end of that verse tells us, if you look at the entire verse, that there were those who were able to put on armor and then there were the upwards. The upwards not only were able to put on armor, they knew how to fight with it. But this group of people, the Moabites, rounded up everyone who was of fighting age, whether they knew how to fight or not. They were defending themselves. I feel like that's what we would do if someone suddenly attacked us. Yes, we have a military. We have several branches that are organized and have missions and strategies for defending the country, but at some point, those of us who are able to put on armor, who are not in the military, would gladly do so to defend our country, defend our state. So that's the picture that we have in verse 21. Though Moabites gathered all who were able to put on armor and upward, those who not only were able, but who were used to fighting in that armor. And then... Verse 22, and they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water. Now that's upon the water 
that was in those ditches. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood. Now, what do we know about the water? The water was just as pure as it could be because men and beasts drank from it. It was drinkable. But that same water to the Moabites looked like blood. And that the reason for that could be a reflection of the sun as it rose in the east and cast that glare upon the water. Or maybe it was the color of the surrounding land. But in either case, God's timing, his predestination of this was perfect. It was spot on. And now we might understand that for these thirsty Israelite, Judean, Edomite soldiers, God did not simply bring water out of a rock or out of a tree. He did it this way because he had another plan. That was not only to give water to these thirsty soldiers, but also to use that same water to deceive the enemy Moabites into thinking it was blood. Now let's look at verse 23. And they said, that is the Moabites who saw this water looking like blood, and they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. Now therefore, Moab, to the spoil. So what was the impression of the Moabites? That the blood, which was not blood, but it looked like blood to them, that the blood in such abundance must have meant that the king of Judah and the king of Israel and the king of Edom turned on each other and started killing one another and each other's soldiers and that they had killed each other off to the point that all the Moabites had to do is go over there and it says to the spoil. That means all of the things that they would gather, all of the possessions they would take that were left by these dead Israelites and Judeans and Edomites. They probably thought, well, we'll just run from our border to the camp of these slaughtered many and pluck their treasures, their weapons, and their cattle from them. Verse 24, and when they came to the camp of Israel... The Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites even in their country. Notice that even though we had three groups of soldiers, we had those from Judah led by Jehoshaphat, their king, and from Israel and then from Edom, only Israel is mentioned here as rising up and smiting these Moabites and chasing them off. This was, after all, their battle. Jehoshaphat simply joined himself to the king, to Jehoram. And the Edomite king joined himself to Jehoram, king of Israel. But it was Israel's battle. And I don't know if Edom or Judah went with Israel or not. But it says that Israel not only smote the Moabites, but they remembered what God told them to do, at least now, by remembering what the minstrel said. 
The minstrel said that God would deliver the Moabites into their hand. Now, the, the correct assumption there, based upon elsewhere in the Bible where God does the same thing, is that when God delivers the enemy into your hands, then you conquer the enemy. If he delivers them into your hands, then you conquer. You don't say, well, welcome to my front porch. And so they didn't celebrate prematurely as the Moabites did, but they pursued the Moabites back into their own country, which really belonged to Israel before all this. Did you know that? Isn't it a pattern, and it it just makes you bang your head on the wall, that Israel had all of this land that they're continually trying to take back. God gave it to them. If you go back in the book book of Exodus and then you read through Joshua where all the land was parceled out to the various tribes, Israel used to be a huge nation. It wasn't this little sliver. If you look on the map now, it's a, it's a piece of pie. That's what it looks like. And it's chopped up with the Gaza Strip and the, the Palestinians are trying to cut it in half. And all of Israel's enemies surrounding her are trying to make that pie smaller and smaller and smaller. And the liberals in the world say, why they should just give the the Palestinians this bit and that bit of Israel. Boy, Israel used to be a large country. And now even in the text, they're continually having to take back what God had already given to them. Look in verse 25. We're in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 25. And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kirharasheth left they the stones thereof. Howbeit, the slingers went about and smote it. So of all of this destruction of these cities, which God told them to do, he said destroy every choice city, every fenced city, mar all of the good land. In other words, mess it up because it it had belonged to the Moabites at that time. But in this verse, you see only in Kir Harasheth left they the stones thereof. Now why would they do that? It's not clear by the rest of the text if those stones were left unsmitten, in other words, together, or if they weren't. We do see that the slingers, now those are people who hurl things, sling things. Pretty easy, isn't it? Probably stones. That they smote the city, and it could be that they smote the city without breaking up the stones. Or they may have broken up the stones. It's not clear to us in this text. Even in studying what Isaiah and Jeremiah say about this city, they're not specific about the stones of this city. They do say that God had broken Moab. And if you're interested in further study on that, get after it. All Bible study is good. But we'll go on to verse 26. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through, even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. The Moabite king is desperate here. 
Even if he could not beat the entire army of the Israelites, this king was at least going to take out his enemy, the king of Edom. And this strategy of concentrating an attack on an isolated target probably worked for this Moabite king before. But it would not, and it could not this time. After all, God had given a command to destroy Moab, and he had enabled Israel to do it. Verse 27, then he took his eldest son. Now that would be the king of Moab. He took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead, and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. That means Israel departed from this Moabite king and returned to their own land. The king of of the Moabites did a terrible thing here by sacrificing his son. Perhaps he thought Israel would back off and Spare the rest of the Moabites if he did this. I feel certain that's why he did that. And unfortunately, he was right. Rather than wiping out all the Moabites and completely destroying their cities as God told them to do, Israel turned around and went home when the Moabite king sacrificed his son. And for this reason, the Moabites would continue to plague God's people. Before we go into chapter 4, which carries us into a different subject with Elisha, I want to mention that as we've studied the books of the kings, we've learned many things from them. And one of those things is that incomplete obedience is disobedience. God told the Israelites to wipe the Moabites out through this minstrel. They killed a bunch of them, but they didn't kill them all. And that sin will have a consequence. Similarly, the Bible teaches that incomplete obedience to God's law is sin. It's disobedience. You know, the world is satisfied with making less than 100 when it comes to obeying God's law. But God is not satisfied with less than 100. In James chapter 2 Verses 10 through 11, if you're taking notes, James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. He wrote, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, and said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. Now, using James's words, we can apply them to this group of Israelites. For God said, I will deliver the Moabites into your hand, and you'll smite every fenced city. Now, if they smote every fenced city but don't smite every Moabite, then they become a transgressor of the law, of God's commandment. And seeing that it is in man... In our depraved nature to disobey by partially obeying. See, we justify that, don't we? We say, well, I did most things well. Seeing that that's the case with man and it renders us hopeless, it was only because Jesus obeyed fully by fully obeying that he could be our representative to God. 
Had Jesus obeyed all but even one of God's commandments, he would have been rendered unqualified. He couldn't be our substitute. That's what these Israelites did. They showed us that incomplete obedience is disobedience. And thank God Jesus was able to testify truly, I always please the Father. And I'm glad he did. And he does. Let's go now to chapter 4. Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying, Thy servant, my husband, is dead. And thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. Who was this woman? She was a wife of the sons of the prophets. Now, we've read about the sons of the prophets in Jericho and also before that in the prior chapters of Second Kings. And by and large, these weren't a very nice group of people to Elisha, were they? Before Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind, they mocked him and said, Aha, today God's going to take your master from your head. And Elisha said, I know. Hold your peace. You don't have to tell me that. I already know it. So that's who the sons of the prophets were. And neither her nor her husband's name is given. And now she's a widow. And it says in that verse she has two sons. There are several things this widow said about her husband. One, he was thy servant, speaking to Elisha. Two, he's dead. Three, he feared the Lord. And four, he left us in debt. Apparently the debt was large enough that it would take both of her sons serving as bondmen, as slaves, to pay it off. Now, we might conclude several things from this verse. One is that these sons were old enough to work. Why, you wouldn't take a couple of three- or four-year-olds and say, well, they're going to work this debt off. They don't know how to do that sort of work. So these sons were old enough to work. And with all these things being the case, we could make the argument here that the, the husband who died was not a good manager of his finances. If he lived long enough to be married and to have sons who were old enough to work, he should not have left his family desolate. And we don't read of any particular catastrophe that, that kept this husband from working. He was of the sons of the prophets. So he, had, uh, he was at least able to walk around and mock Elisha with the rest of the sons of the prophets. Now let's analyze this from the world's perspective and then we'll look at it further from the Bible's perspective. The world sees this family as victims to predatory lending. I remember when that phrase predatory lending came out. Now there are some who do that, loan sharks and so forth. But the world sees the lender as a cruel, heartless human being, a monster. After all, they reason the creditor has plenty of money. 
Why does he need to take all that this family has? Well, the Bible actually paints the picture the way God sees it. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7. And you're probably familiar with this. Proverbs 22, 7. It says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Did you hear that? The borrower is servant to the lender. That's what the Bible says. Lending money is a business. It was then, it is now. Borrowers are customers who agree to the terms of a loan before they ever collect any of the money. Nobody ever forces them to accept that loan. And those terms to which they agree involve paying back the money and interest, which the Bible calls usury. And I like the word usury. You're using my money, you're going to have to pay me a little bit to use my money, and that's called an interest rate. Now, it's funny that the world sees the creditor as a thief when he tries to collect the money and interest that's due to him, but the world does not call the borrower a thief when he receives money that was not owed to him. Isn't that backwards? The relationship between the lender, in our text called the creditor, and the borrower is very much like the relationship between the Lord and mankind. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus told a parable of the talents that were given by a man to his servants. When that man, who represents the lender, the creditor, reckoned with his servants, who represent the borrowers, he was not pleased that there was one borrower who was given a talent, a certain amount of money, and buried it. Now, I'm not going to teach the parable. It would take uh, the rest of our time to do that. But I want you to listen to what the lender said about the money that he loaned to this borrower. Now, this is Jesus telling this parable. It's found in Matthew 25, verse 27. Matthew 25, 27. This borrower or this lender said to this borrower, Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money, notice the possessive pronoun, to the exchangers, and then at my coming I should have received mine own with usury. That lender rightfully called the money he loaned to this borrower, to this servant, his. And he also, by saying mine own with usury, meant not only should I have rightfully expected you to give me my money back, but also the, the interest that came with it. So the lender rightfully said mine own because both the money and the interest were his. It was not a cruel thing in the eyes of the Lord for this man to demand his money and the interest. So although in the flesh it might seem initially wrong to a person that the creditor would take the widow's sons as bondservants to pay a debt, consider this. Without this business model, there would be no lenders. Who would want to go into the business at all? 
the potential borrowers would just have to figure out some other way to live. And they might even die or do without. If anything, blame the dead husband and perhaps the slothful sons. If they were old enough to be bondservants now, then they were old enough to have contributed financially to their mother, to her well-being first. This very thing is addressed in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 4. 1 Timothy 5, 4, listen to what the Apostle Paul told Timothy. But if any widow have children, and this widow has children, doesn't she? Or nephews, let them first learn to show piety at home and to requite their parents. For that is good and acceptable before God. This widow had sons. They should have stepped up to the plate to help their mom and themselves. So that the dead husband is to blame, the two sons are to blame, and the widow is having to deal with this seemingly by herself. You know, this is the same. Let's, let's look at verse 2 now and then talk about it. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me. What hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house save a pot of oil. This is the same type of question we ask people who walk into our door in their ragged, dirty clothes asking for help. We ask them in some form or another, what shall I do for thee? How can we help you? And you know, I've been doing this a long time. I've been meeting people at the door of the church or at the back of the church who've come in under those circumstances. And I haven't had one yet who said, here's what you can do for me. I want to be fed with God's wonderful truth that my soul shall live. Don't hear that. No, they ask for money and then they lie and say, oh, it's for gas. Oh, I have a, uh, my mother has a heart problem and she's seeking medical treatment. They go around church after church and do that. And then you know where that money goes? Goes to buy dope, alcohol, other things. We're not helping people like that when we do that. Because I've dealt with drug addicts and alcoholics for over 30 years, I know who I'm talking to during these times. These people lie so much. They have put together these fabricated, lengthy stories, and they're pretty good at telling them, and they're pretty good at convincing people to let go of their money and hand it off to them. And because of their mismanagement of their own money and choices, employment, and their lives in general, where do they come? They come to the Lord's house looking for help. And yet when we offer them spiritual help, and in some cases offer them help with finding employment or establishing a budget, they refuse. I remember a particular case here. It's been quite a few years ago. The person is no longer visiting and hasn't for some time. And we offered to help that person with a budget. And the person had a steady stream of income coming in from your wallets, the taxpayers. And we offered to help with a budget. And the person said, no, you don't understand. And didn't want any help with the budget. And that person had enough money to be able to have food and clothing and shelter. 
Not only does Elisha ask her what he can do for her, look at the next question he asks her. What hast thou in the house? Now, after all, if we're going to help someone, let's start with financially. We have to start by helping them with what they have. What do you have? We can talk about what you don't have all day long, but what do you have? And even if what you have is a social security check, that's enough to get you food, clothing, and shelter. My grandmother lived on a $249 a month social security check, and because my grandfather fought in World War II, she got a whopping $26 a month from the VA. So $275 a month is what my grandmother lived on by herself as a widow from 1976 to 1996 when she passed away. She lived in trailer houses. She lived with one of her widowed sisters for a while and finally in her own apartment in Olney, Texas. She was debt-free when she died. And she had saved $8,000 up for her own funeral so her sons and daughter would not be put out. And on our birthdays, grandkids, great-grands, we got a card with a dollar bill in it. So when somebody comes to me crying about how they just can't live on their wages, I don't take that too well. I'm gracious and compassionate to them. But I don't give them money. I give them a budget because that's what they need. I ask them how much they make and how much they owe. And that's usually the end of the conversation, unfortunately. You see, most people, I said most, most people in that situation, in my experience, don't want to hear good biblical financial counsel. Brother, I'd rather live in a tent in a state park and bathe in Lake Tawakini before I'll borrow a dollar from you to live on. That's just the way I feel. God help us not to be greedy and selfish, even when we're in need. And let's see what this widow says she has in verse 2. She said, a pot of oil. Now, the word pot here doesn't give us a, a clue as to what size it was. You may be thinking of the bean pot you use to feed your tribe, something like that. But other translations call this a jar, even a flask or a vase from the Reina Valera, which is the Spanish translation from the original manuscript or from the original text, calls it a vase. So it's not much. It's some oil. It's not much. It might be like your little Crisco bottle that you buy at the store with your vegetable oil in it. Verse 3, then he said, go borrow thee vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. In other words, bring a lot, go borrow. Now this tells us that the widow did not even have empty vessels in her house. She had one pot and it was, it had oil in it. Perhaps the creditors took those other vessels. Maybe she had to pawn them off or auction them off leaving her with only that precious jar of oil and her two sons. 
And notice that Elisha told her to borrow those vessels. And in the Hebrew language, this word carries the implication of begging, even demanding, someone being desperate, as if someone were dying of thirst in the desert. And instead of asking when you walk by, instead of saying, could you spare some water? All they can do is cry, water, water. It's like that. Notice Elisha did not tell her to borrow food from her neighbors. Had she depended on her neighbors for food, then she probably would have always depended on them for food. And her sons were about to be taken away by the creditors, and their work would go to pay off a debt that her household owed, not to buy her food. And bringing the empty vessels back to the house, if she would just comply with what Elisha said, bringing those empty vessels back showed she completely trusted in the Lord for her provisions. She would have to. All she needed was something to put those provisions in, those blessings in. And that's what the empty vessels were for. Verse 4, Elisha continues to this widow, And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. He said, shut the door behind thee and upon thy sons. In other words, this was not to be a community event. The neighbors weren't supposed to come and help them pour the oil into these vessels. They had to do that themselves, just as they would have to live the rest of their lives themselves from this day forward. The truth was, their dad wasn't coming back. She and her sons had each other. And it says in verse 4, he commanded, and shalt pour out into all those vessels. That is, she'll pour from the one vessel of oil she has, the pot, into those other vessels to fill all of those vessels. And he said, not a few, bring a bunch. Now, this math doesn't work out, humanly speaking, does it? But it's perfectly sound math in God's eyes, and now we're entering from law into grace, aren't we? What was the law with the creditor? The law with the creditor was, you owe me money with interest, and I'm here to collect it, and I'm here to collect every penny of it, every drachma, whatever the the unit was in those days, and not a bit less. And so she turns to the Lord and she says, I don't have anything. I've got this pot of oil and I'm about to have to send my sons off into bondage. And God could have, through Elisha, said, well, that's what happens when you don't take care of your affairs and raise your sons to work hard. But he didn't do that. He showed her grace. If you want to learn about grace, there are many places to do it in the Bible. Well, here's one right here. In the Bible, oil represents the Holy Spirit. And here I think it specifically represents the grace of the Holy Spirit. You can't separate grace from the Holy Spirit of God. They're one and the same. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. Romans 5, 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense 
might abound. But where sin abounded, now that's one Greek word, abounded, grace did much more abound. Those words, did much more abound, are a different Greek word. It's important because the word abounded, the first word, the one that's attached to sin that said where sin abounded, that means increased. But the single Greek word translated did much more abound means exceeding. In fact, in the Greek language, if you transliterate it, meaning if you write it where you can read it with our letters, not the Greek letters, the word, the prefix hyper, H-Y-P-E-R, is at the front. Now, what is hyper? Well, just have you a two-year-old boy with some true moo chocolate and a Snickers bar. You'll find out what hyper is, right? Right, Abigail? You know what hyper is, don't you? But the sin that brings death abounds, the Bible tells us, but it has a limit. The grace that brings eternal life exceedingly abounds. And it never runs dry because its source, the Holy Spirit of God, never runs dry. So if you're teaching that this pot of oil is a type of the grace of the Holy Spirit of God, then this may help you understand it better. It's important that this one jar of oil be sufficient to not only fill all the other vessels, but also to not run dry itself and not be diminished even a little bit. Elisha told them in verse 4, told the the widow, and set aside that which is full. It wasn't like the widow was going to have to divide the oil, like we do that last bit of milk and we've got three cereal bowls and we want everybody to have the same amount of milk in their their cookie crisp. So we pour a little here. Y'all done that before. And there and, and before you know it, it's all gone. That wasn't what this oil would represent. This oil wouldn't run out. She could pour all day long and every vessel that was in her house would be completely full and this one would never run dry. They would be filled with oil from that one jar. Verse 5. So she went from him, and she shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass, when the vessels were full, that she said unto her son, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. At this time, when this woman went from Elisha and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, she had a choice to make. God's prophet had given her the plan. She could either try to make her own way, which wasn't working out too well up to this point, or by faith she could follow the counsel Elisha gave her, as mathematically impossible as that seemed. Grace is mathematically impossible, by the way. We, we just don't understand it. God dispenses it over and over, and it's fresh and renewed, and he never runs out, and he never, he's never on three-quarters of a tank, is he? So the widow and her sons obeyed the prophet's voice. This is how you strengthen your children's spiritual walk right here. You obey God all the time, but especially when times are tough. 
Because that's when they're looking. They're looking all the time. Do you tithe until you start running low on money and say, well, I can't really afford it. Come see me. I'll help you afford it. I'll show you how. Do you pray only when you're on a mountaintop? But then when you get down in a valley, things are tough and low. You say, well, God, God can't do anything for me. God can't help me. Do you study God's word and live by it until it goes against your flesh? And you say, well, wait a minute now. I don't see anything wrong with that. Here all these vessels were full. Not one was lacking. And this woman obeyed God in front of her sons. She responded to grace by obeying. That's what we ought to do. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, the Bible says. Verse 7, and then we'll have to close. Then she came and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay thy debt, and live thou and thy children of the rest. Even now this widow could have said, well, we've got a bunch of full pots of oil. At least we can live for a little while longer until we run out of oil again. But she was still interested in what God's plan was. Even in the midst of her newfound prosperity. Do you know what many people do when they get bailout money? That's what this was, but it was gracious bailout money. We saw it during the the COVID pandemic, if that's what it was, where Stimulus payments, our tax dollars, were given away to people depending on their income levels. Many people who received the money never paid taxes, so it wasn't wasn't like a refund to them. It was free money. Would this woman use this free oil and go on a shopping spree? Now that this woman has an untold number of vessels full of valuable oil, What was the first piece of advice Elisha gave her? Pay your debts. Pay your debts. Oh, how the world would say he was cruel. After all, why why couldn't she take that money and upgrade her, her home or get a new iPhone or get a new bedroom suit or have a night on the town? You know why? Because she was a debtor. And it was just that she be required to pay her debts. And in doing so, she would be debt-free and would keep her sons who could then work to help her not to pay off a creditor, but to live and to prosper. Most of this country is in debt. This country is in debt. And it keeps getting further into debt. When people get a raise or a promotion or other increase in cash flow, they often buy more things. They roll their loans into another loan and get further into debt than they were before. Being debt-free is not only wise, it's scriptural. What's keeping you from being debt-free? Is it because you want more stuff? Is it because you have too much stuff? I'm going to tell you that being debt-free is wonderful. I wasn't always debt-free financially. But if I died today, I know that my wife would not be saddled with debt like this poor widow and her two sons. Speaking to Christians right now, because the carnal mind doesn't grasp this. If you're in debt, get out of it as fast as you can. You are a servant to your lender, just like this widow and her sons were. 
One more thing, and I'll leave this point. I know very few people in my life who were debt-free, and then something catastrophic happened to them, to their finances, and they had to go back into a debt debt relationship for a time. And those people were sick to their stomachs. They didn't like being in debt, paying interest on money they had to borrow. But because they were debt-free before, they knew how to get there again. And I'm going to make you an offer free of charge to any of you who are struggling with debt. I'm not a CPA. I'm not a stockbroker. I'm not a financial counselor or advisor. I'm a Bible student. And I know what the Bible says. If you want to get out of debt and you're willing to be perfectly honest with me about your income and your debts, I will meet with you and your spouse confidentially. And we will get you on a budget, and you'll get out of financial bondage. I'm not going to make you rich. I don't know all about the stock market, but I do know about debt, and I know what the Bible says about it. And I hope we learned something about it today from God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for all who came, for all who watched, for all who will watch later in the week the recorded version of this lesson. And, Father, we pray that nothing but your truth went forth and stuck in the ears and the heart of these people. And, Lord, as we consider what your word says, as we meditate upon it, Lord, help us just to be honest with ourselves and to know that each of us, whether we're a debtor financially or not, we were a debtor to do the whole law and we failed. And you sent Jesus to accomplish that complete obedience on our part and crucified him for our sins that we may believe on him and receive eternal life. And we thank you for this in his name. Amen.